I'm Emily Kwong, host of the new podcast Inheriting from LAist Studios. Join me for an immersive evening about Asian American and Pacific Islander families and their histories. June 27th at the Crawford in Pasadena. Tickets at LAist.com slash events. On Inheriting, Bao Trong was born in the U.S., but he longs for Vietnam, a country his father left behind. Being homesick for a, a place that's never been home. So how does he tell his dad that? Listen to Inheriting from LAS Studios and the NPR Network, wherever you get your podcasts. From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Take Two, Mae Martinez. Nancy Pelosi has said she won't be speaker past 2022, but she hasn't entirely shut the door on that. If not her, then who holds the gavel? Also, how 35 GOP votes may translate into a vote of no confidence in Kevin McCarthy. Plus, why on June 15th, California will feel like a super sale at Mervyn's. Open, 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 open. It's all ahead on Take Two. I'm Christina Cotarucci, and this season on Slow Burn. It's called Proposition 6. The Briggs Initiative. John Briggs is going to fire every gay and lesbian school teacher in California. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We can't let this happen in California. And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out now, wherever you listen. One event can change a family for generations. I'm Emily Kwong, host of a new podcast from LAS Studios called Inheriting. It's about Asian American and Pacific Islander families and their histories. Join me for an immersive storytelling event at the Crawford in Pasadena. It's June 27th. Get your tickets now at las.com slash events. From 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org, this is Take Two. Me, Martinez, thanks for doing Friday with us. Now, normally we kick things off with our weekly politics segment, and don't worry, we are going to get to it. But today we're mixing it up a bit because the plan is in. California health officials outline what the state will look like on June 15th. That's the day the state will fully reopen after more than a year of pandemic protocols and closures. KPCC's Jackie Fortier is here to explain all the new rules. Jackie, so businesses will want to know what are the changes? There's going to be a lot of changes for businesses. No more capacity limits at businesses or big venues like arenas. There will no longer be any physical distancing requirements for customers. But for employees, it's a little different. The Cal OSHA board won't update their rules until early June, so we don't really know what those new rules will look like. Cal OSHA decides workplace safety regulations at almost all workplaces in the state. Yeah, Jackie, I just saw Dodger Stadium full capacity on June 15th, 56,000 people in the same building. Uh, okay. So what about masks? <laughs> well, they're outside, so but we'll talk about that okay. in just a minute. Uh, so on June 15th, masking in California will align with the CDC recommendations that were updated last week. You may remember those say that fully vaccinated people no longer need to wear masks in most cases, both indoors and outdoors, except for a few places like public transportation, airplanes, healthcare settings, and at businesses that mandate them. But the mask rules at workplaces are still murky. The Cal OSHA board may allow fully vaccinated workers without COVID-19 symptoms to forego masks, both as long as everyone else is vaccinated and doesn't have symptoms. But we're going to have to wait until May 28th to see the proposed updated safety protections that they will then vote on June 3rd. We know that masks reduce airborne transmission of COVID-19. We also know that while two-thirds of Californians have gotten at least one vaccine, shot, there are big pockets of people who remain unvaccinated. We're in a really weird place as far as masks go right now. I would really keep one handy moving forward. I'll do you one better. I'm going to have one on my face for a while. That's what I'm going to do personally. That's your choice. That's my choice. Now, what about big venues such as concerts? Are those allowed again? Yes, you can go to a concert with thousands of people again starting on June 15th, but you may have to prove your vaccination status or test negative. It depends on the venue. So the state is recommending but not requiring that mega outdoor event venues with more than 10,000 attendees, so like Dodger Stadium, Mm -hmm. 
They recommend that they verify that patrons are fully vaccinated or provide a negative COVID-19 test. Non-vaccinated people would need to wear a mask. The state health department is going to provide further guidelines on this in the coming days. But for indoor venues of more than 5,000 people, it is different. They are required to verify if people are vaccinated or test negative for COVID-19. And state health officials did not specify how they came up with this 5,000-person threshold. Required to verify. So whose responsibility is it to do that? Right. So the only real requirement is on those indoor venues that have more than 5,000 people, like I just said. But it looks like we're really going to see a patchwork of apps. Uh, State health officials said that they are not developing a so-called vaccine passport like the Excelsior app in New York. I think it's important to note that people don't have to be vaccinated to buy tickets or go to a concert under these rules. They just have to self-attest that they tested negative in the last 72 hours. Jackie seems uh, squishy to me. Uh, What's the expectation (laughs) that L.A. County will follow these rules? Yes. Uh, Well, that's kind of another wrinkle. Counties can impose their own stricter rules if they want to. This is a floor, not a ceiling. Barbara Ferrer, the director of the L.A. County Health Department, said recently that L.A. County will follow the state's rules. I mean, they have to. But she didn't see them adding any of their own rules. But that could change, of course, if we saw a bunch of cases because of a variant, for example. Will these rules sunset at any point? Yeah, these rules are only in place for the summer. They will end October 1st. But before that, the state health officials are going to take a look at the cases and hospitalizations, which have been going down, uh, to see if they should be uh, these rules should be lifted or even extended. Jack, I got to ask you, because uh, you've been covering the ins and outs of the pandemic for more than a year um, and all of this mixed messaging. Yeah, that's been going on, too. Does this plan give people more clarity? Um, I think it gives some clarity. Uh, We know that masks are really going to be on the honor system and you won't know who's vaccinated and who isn't. Uh, If you're, I don't know, planning a wedding, for example, you don't have to worry about health restrictions anymore. Uh, But I do think we really need clarity on the workspace rules. Right now, people have to be masked regardless of vaccination status and try to stay six feet apart from each other at workplaces. And as businesses open up, Everybody wants to know if fully vaccinated people can go without masks in workplace and also how that health information will be asked and what employers can do with it. And if people want to, there's a KPCC mask that uh, they can wear if they want to go on KPCC.org and give and, you know, get the mask. That's KPCC yeah, looks health good. reporter Jackie Fortier. Jackie, thanks a lot. Thank you. All right, now let's head into State of Affairs, our weekly dive into California's politics pool. Now, in addition to all that reopening stuff you just heard about, we also plan to talk about the political tension building up around an independent commission to investigate the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Yesterday, 35 House Republicans voted with their Democratic colleagues in favor of such a commission, and one of them is from California, all of which probably did not sit well with House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, who opposes it. Now, all this brings up two questions for the GOP. Do the 35 Republicans who defied McCarthy amount to a rebuke of the California congressman's party leadership and his ambition to be House Speaker? And is the overall GOP opposition to the commission more about winning the midterms and less about winning favor with Donald Trump? Here to chop it all up is Marisa Lagos, political correspondent for KQED and co-host of Political Breakdown Podcast, and Zach Corser, director of the Policy Lab at Claremont McKenna College. All right, Marisa, let's start with you. You heard Jackie there. I want to get your thoughts. Does this give Californians enough clarity? Well, you know, I think that a lot of people are going to be celebrating, and I'm not really sure there's anything the government can do short of, you know, the vaccine passports and and those things, or I don't know, a scarlet V on our chest to like really, to, you know, to really <laughs> tell everybody who's vaccinated. Um, so I think that like most of this pandemic, a lot of this is going to be up to personal responsibility. And I think, you know, the good news for Californians is that I think broadly we have been very much willing to take that on in this state. Um, 
um, and 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 you see our vaccine rates, you know, while still not as high statewide as you'd like, but in some communities are very high. I mean, in San Francisco, we're in the upper 60s of people who've had at least one shot in most neighborhoods. So uh, it, it, I think it's going to be like everything else, a learning process for businesses and individuals. But um, I'm sure there are people ready to, you know, clink the champagne glasses right now. Absolutely. Mask free, of course, because, you know, yes, how can you because how can you drink you champagne behind a mask? You can't yeah. do it. Can't, like you could, but it would be messy. Now, right off the bat, it uh, all if all of this goes off without a hitch and it holds off uh, throughout the summer, Zach, I got to wonder what this could mean for the reopening of schools, because that's really been one of the most fraught issues of the pandemic, at least here in California. At least in the case of L.A. Unified, I know negotiations are happening with UTLA over a full five-day week in-person, on-campus reopening of all schools. i got to wonder what that might do to something like that. Well, I think you're right to focus on that because we've seen already throughout the pandemic that what L.A. Unified does is something that's telegraphed around Southern California and around the state. But, you know, if, if the idea is that there's going to be some kind of compromise about reopening, I mean, it's just difficult. The consensus is shifting so rapidly when you've got the White House saying you don't need to wear a mask if you've had a vaccine when you've got the CDC, you know, changing its rules on on vaccinated individuals indoors. Uh, when you've got the state of California looking at, you know, basically a full reopening, I mean, essentially you've got the entire Democratic Party underwriting these new guidelines, and so it just seems like it's hard to 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 think that there's going to be anything less than a full reopening. I think moving forward, if things remain as they are, we're going to see the policy focus on the vaccinated and not on the unvaccinated. Because one of the things I spoke with a uh, UTLA president, uh, Cecily Mayart Cruz, uh, about uh, was about her reservations about safety protocols for a full reopening. But I mean, Zach, how, if the science says one thing and the state is wide open, I mean, does that argument still hold water with LAUSD parents or parents? It doesn't matter if it's LAUSD parents of any school district. I think it's going to start coming down to people's own assessment of risk, and you know, things that that moves pretty slowly, and it's also very variable. You know, people have, you know, and it sometimes it can come from places about you know one's health condition too. You know, some people can't get the vaccine because of uh, underlying conditions. You know, there will be a lot of variability in terms of the way people see their own health and their risks. But like I said, people can continue to talk. I think the consensus is going to move slowly within the public, particularly here in California, where I think. You know, wearing masks was was more deeply uh, ingrained in, in our society here and in our politics than in other states. I think people are going to sort of hold on to masks and hold on to caution because of what they've seen. I mean, it's hard to forget the trauma of this last year. And, and it's I think even when you see the science, it's hard to sort of let go of the feeling that these masks protect the uh, society and sort of turn the page on that. And Marisa, basically for the last few months, every time we talk almost, it seems like we're bringing up the recall of Gavin Newsom. So if we step back a little bit, is this plan a good look for Newsom and enough of a good look that it might dilute the recall enthusiasm? I think it definitely undercuts some of the more um, sort of avid conservative opposition to Newsom and potentially helps him with maybe some of those people who signed the petition out of frustration, you know, with schools and business restrictions. I mean, what we've seen in polling is that there's a pretty sort of clear partisan split. um, And I'm not expecting, you know, that means that it's sort of the middle that recall backers need to get, you know, independence, more center, Uh, center-left and center-right, sort of Republicans and Democrats. Um, So this is all good for Newsom, assuming the rates stay low and schools can reopen. I think this is exactly what anybody in his position, Democrat, Republican, wants to be telling their constituents, especially as he faces this recall race. All right, moving on now to the January 6th commission, 35 Republicans siding with Democrats. And I got to admit, I was a little stunned when I saw that number grow. Zach, what did you make of that number? Well, look, 35 votes by current standards of polarization, I mean, that's a jailbreak, Uh, particularly when you look at the fact that John Katko, who's a moderate GOP member from New York, you know, he basically negotiated this thing in a way that he thought could be palatable to Republicans. And I think what he saw very quickly is that Donald Trump and the loudest voices on the right in that caucus basically immediately came against it. And there was this, this idea that, you know, McCarthy 
you know, was going to put down the law here and say, oh, no, you can't do this. But and what ended up happening is that I think it just sort of, I think, is showing the kind of weakness of McCarthy to hold his caucus together and also kind of the weakness in his strategy. I mean, if you look at what he did in terms of Liz Cheney just a couple of weeks ago now, um, and you look at now where he's opposing the this commission, you know, he's, he, there's a lot of mixed messaging. He tells members in vulnerable districts, go ahead and take the vote for the commission because you need it politically. Uh, but at the same time, publicly, he just backs Trump to the hilt. And it seems to me like, you know, it's got to be one or the other. But I think politically, McCarthy has just totally embraced the logic that basically embracing Trump and making him continuing to have him as the leader of the party is the key to winning in 2022. Marisa, what did you make of that uh, number, 35 Republicans, as it relates to Kevin McCarthy's ambition? Yeah, I mean, look, Kevin McCarthy is hardly the first leader in the House to struggle to keep his sort of wide-ranging caucus together. I mean, look at Paul Ryan. Uh, we can keep going back, right? I think, though, that you do see a difference here. And, and I find it sort of ironic as somebody who watches, of course, Nancy Pelosi very closely, being from San Francisco, because... We hear a lot of headlines about the fighting within the Democratic Party. And the truth is, Pelosi has done a masterful job historically keeping her kind of troops in order. I don't think McCarthy has that same skill set. I think he is in a tough place. Um, and I think that this shows that there are areas where you know, the fact that Trump does have a very strong base within the Republican Party, but that is not the entire party. Um, it, it shows some weaknesses there. Now, at the end of the day, though, a I mean, whether or not he becomes speaker or any Republican becomes speaker is going to happen on the ground in the district level. So I think I think this is only really a threat to his power um, if he bungles those sorts of races or if somebody else sees him as weak from within his own caucus and, and makes a move. Now, to avoid a filibuster, Senate Democrats need 10 Republicans to vote with them, something that I thought sounded impossible last week. But now with those 35 House GOP votes, well, I don't know. I mean, what do you think, Marisa? It's. I mean, it's unlikely, but I think it's really hard to tell with this issue if it's impossible. Um, I think it may depend on how hard McConnell goes, right? I mean, what we did see in the House was the sort of attempted a middle ground. They weren't necessarily whipping votes against it, but they were saying, you know, we're urging you to, to vote against it. Uh, McConnell has now said he's opposed. Um, We'll have to see. I mean, I think there's also a question of what this means for more moderate Democrats like Manchin and Cinema if they see if this is where a filibuster starts, right? On something like this. I mean, this was an attack on our democracy and on the people voting on whether to study it. Um, so I think that's going to be both a question for Republicans in the Senate and also centrist Democrats. Zach, seven GOP senators voted with uh, Democrats to convict Donald Trump. Can they find three more, you think, to go with them on this? If wow. seven hold, uh, if seven hold. Yeah, I know. Uh, I, if I had to bet on it, I'd say no. Uh, I think McConnell has hardened his stance. Um, and I think that the Senate GOP conference is simply not moderate. Uh, I don't think there's a lot of wiggle room here. I think there's actually less wiggle room than there is in the House. And I think the danger here is a kind of political logic of polarization that we see in everything where it's, you know, we've got to circle the wagons and the Republicans are going to take a stand and make a fist and McConnell's going to say, we're going to filibuster this thing. And then the progressives are going to speak up and start attacking the, the whole idea of the filibuster. And so this will turn into, I think, a food fight and we will lose focus on January 6th and we'll lose focus on what this bill is all about. And we'll just descend into sort of our, our comfortable corners where we're battling each other over things like the filibuster and who's for what and who's against what, but not what we're actually arguing about. What's 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 at stake? Hey, guys, hold on right there. we got a lot more to get to on State of Affairs. We're talking with Marisa Lagos, political correspondent for KQED, and Zach Corser, director of the Policy Lab at Claremont McKenna College. We're going to take a break right now for just, a, just about 60 seconds. We're going to be back with both of them, State of Affairs, in just one minute. I'm LA's food editor, Gab Chabran. So we are going to do the chicken katsu damburi. A taco is not just a taco. A pizza is not just a pizza. And noodles aren't just noodles. We focus on all natural ingredients, okay? Everything is by hand. I explore how food connects us to the social fabric of Southern California. Vietnamese sandwich shop here on the corner of Board and North Broadway in Chinatown. And tells the region's story. LA's independent journalism. 
fact-based journalism. I'm Jesse Thorne, the host of Bullseye, inviting you to a taping of my show with my pal, actor, comedian, podcaster, memoirist, Paul Shear. Hey, Paul. That's me. Hey, Jesse, I am so excited to join you to talk about my brand new book, Joyful Recollections of Trauma. We're going to have a great time at the Crawford on June 13th. Come on out. Get tickets now. LAist.com slash events. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. I'm e. Martinez. All right, continuing with our weekly politics segment, State of Affairs, we're talking to KQED's Marisa Lagos and Zach Corser of Claremont McKenna College. Now, we were talking about the January 6th commission, and it might be easy to say that uh, any Republican who opposes the commission is just trying to win favor with Donald Trump. And while that might be true at the higher levels and maybe true altogether, um, you know, when it comes to McCarthy or McConnell who want to claim leadership roles, I'm wondering what about the ones facing midterm challengers, Marisa? Is, is, are they maybe just thinking about the midterms as opposed to wanting to be on Donald Trump's good side? I think it's all of the above. I mean, and those two things may not be separate, right? I mean, we've seen Donald Trump insert himself into primaries again and again and, and support candidates who he feels, you know, will be loyal to him. But to your bigger point, I mean, yes, I don't think this is just about Trump. This is about winning. And I think there's a real fear among Republicans that if this commission gets started now and, and goes and does its work and it's still doing that work in 2022, that this could kind of keep the January 6th insurrection in the headlines um, and obviously how Republicans and, and the former president responded to it. Um, and and this just generally that, you know, they don't I don't think they see a political reason for doing this. So when you add all that together, um, I think to Zach's point, it just makes it really difficult to get this through. And Zach, Trump strikes me as someone who will get involved in Senate races like Liz Cheney's race, but not maybe a congressional district. Because that's a lot. Of, that, that might be too much travel maybe for him to, to try and go and stump for. Yeah, I, I mean, I wouldn't see Trump burning a lot of calories in terms of hopping on planes. Uh, but I would I do think his word counts for a lot. And so even though he's been off Twitter and Facebook, I think there are ways for him to, to weigh in. And, you know, we can't underestimate his his pettiness when it comes to these things. When he sees votes that he interprets as against him, I don't think you can we can discount the idea that he will get very intense or, or at least will try to make some kind of move to make people pay because that's how he sees his, his political fortunes. That's how he sees himself. So he's not to be underestimated, although I will admit I'm kind of surprised at, at you know, I won't say he's been quiet, but he just as much as Republicans focus on him, as much as McCarthy seems to think he's at the center of their political universe, I do kind of feel like there's kind of been a half-life to Trump. And mm. as we've, you know, as we're getting into to May and getting towards uh, the end of the year here, he just doesn't seem to have the same pull. But we're going to see as these primaries heat up whether whether or not Donald Trump is the center of the, the Republican Party or not. Now, uh, earlier I mentioned that uh, one out of 11 California Republicans voted for the January 6th commission. Now it's David Valadeo of Hanford. Um, Zach, how do you read the political calculus in his decision? Well, hey, look, he won by just about 1,500 votes after sitting out a whole session of Congress. You know, he lost uh, for a term. And the DCCC has made his seat a priority. He's already got challengers on both sides. He's got a Republican primary challenger from the right. He's got uh, uh, an assemblywoman uh, from the left, Democrat, who's, who's announced who's going to challenge him. He's also got a district being redrawn. Uh, so he's really in a tough spot in a very purple district. And so, you know, he voted for impeachment. He voted for this commission. You know, I think he he sees his political ad, uh, advantage as being as much as possible, which is a, a tough thing to do in the GOP right now, to be seen as a moderate and to sort of hold the middle. Uh, it's a very uncomfortable place to be. And Marisa, it seems like Valadeo definitely is someone that uh, votes his conscience. Well, 
I mean, you have to, and this is sort of to, to, to the original question about McCarthy, always the challenge for a leader, right? Is that, of course, there are party priorities, but they don't matter if you don't have power and you need to get power by keeping people in their districts. Um, you know, I think Valadeo has done a good job. I mean, he's going to get flack on either side because it is a split district. Um, but you saw McCarthy come out, you know, with a joint statement, kind of assuring people that they're you know, on the same team and working together on things that impact their constituents in the Central Valley. Um, you know, I think that this is wise politics for Valadeo, and it's the reason that he's been able to win in that district most of the time, um, even though the registration advantage is slightly towards Democrats. Do you think, though, Marisa, that, I mean, McCarthy and Valadeo's districts are like side by side up uh, yeah. in Central California. Do you think he looks over to the right and kind of just rolls his eyes? I mean, I think that he is a <laughs> an experienced politician who probably understands the challenges. Um, but it is it is sort of striking that they're right next to each other and you do have this split, but it just shows that, you know, this is like back to the recall stuff. I mean, registration numbers matter, turnout matters. And at the end of the day, when you have a district um, like Valadeo's that not just is, you know, dem leaning, but also has such a huge Latino population. And I think um, people who might have be more conservative, but also might have been more turned off by Trump, um, he's just had to thread a really challenging needle, uh, and, and that's why he lost, and that's why he was able to come back. Now, one more thing before we leave D.C. and bring it back to California. After the Democrats uh, flipped the House back in 2018, Nancy Pelosi said that she will not be Speaker past 2022. But, Marisa, why does it seem like that is still up in the air? Well, she hasn't officially said she's not running again, and I don't think anybody thinks she would stay in Congress and give up her leadership post, especially at her age. Um, so I think, you know, she made this promise. It was not, you know, bound in writing or blood by any means, um, but it was something that she said she'd do. And, you know, she's pretty famous for keeping kind of her cards very close to her chest, not even telling family members sometimes what she's thinking. Um, so I think that, you know, there's just a lot of people wondering, and she's she hasn't appointed a a successor yet so that so i think that kind of adds to the drama yeah she keeps raising money uh she's what 32 million in the first a few months of 2021 uh, zach she's definitely not stepping aside before 2022 she's got uh, biden's uh, agenda that trillion trillions of dollar agenda to try and uh, work through but uh, i mean can you see her sticking around past 2022 or is it one of those things where it's like if not her then who well, you know, Marissa, like Marissa was saying earlier, she's been very effective at managing a difficult caucus and she's been delivering results. Uh, she's also 81 and we've got an older president and the current leadership, Democratic leadership in the House is also quite old. And I think there's going to be, you know, she sort of stated the last time around that, you know, this was going to be her last go round. And she tried to assuage concerns from progressives that younger voices needed a bigger place in the Democratic Party and in the House. You know, part of her getting reelected to the speakership was making that promise. The problem is, who's going to replace her? Mm -hmm. I just don't know that there's anyone who has the experience, the gravitas, uh, the ability that she does as a leader of the House at a very sort of critical time. I mean, if the election, let's say it's close. I mean, people have been saying that Republicans are likely to win in 2022. If it's close and there's a, another narrow majority, you know, who could hold it together other than her? So she may end up seeming at least politically indispensable for another two years of speakership. All right, now let's bring it back to California because uh, last Friday, after a drip, drip, drip kind of week, Gavin Newsom's budget splashed down $267 billion bucks. And since you two weren't uh, with us uh, last week, uh, now you've had a week to let it sink in. Marisa, let's start with you on this. What kind of budget does it read to you as? All the things, eh? It's a <laughs> it's it's a political win for this, of course, somebody facing a recall. It's also just a, a a governing win for any governor. I mean, who doesn't want to be in a position where they have so much money uh, to play with, especially coming out of such a rough year? So, you know, I think. Newsom is certainly trying to roll this out in a way that makes him look very strong um, coming into the recall election. But I also think if you look at what he's proposing, I don't think it's wildly different than what he would be wanting to do with this money with or without the recall, right? We're talking about huge investments in education, trying to tackle the homeless problem and housing shortages, um, putting money into broadband access, direct stimulus checks. I mean, that's a win for any <laughs> any governor, no matter what 
what day of the week it is. Zach, the uh, legislative analyst office, nonpartisan uh, legislative analyst office, did not think much of it. Uh, how did the budget read to you when you saw it come down? Well, I mean, first, what a wild reversal of fortune. I mean, a year ago, we were looking at a $50 billion deficit, and now we're looking at a windfall compounded by federal aid. But I, I, I mean, I tend to agree, at least to my reading of it, with the analyst in the sense that I do feel like this spending plan was a bit rushed out. Um, it's easy to dole out money, but it's hard to develop policy that will be effective and to track that spending. You know, you can't just scale everything up. And I think there's some big problems in California housing, uh, obviously, uh, environmental resilience, you know, thinking about water use, thinking about fire prevention, uh, pension problems. All these things are expensive. They require thought. And I think actually uh, there was a lack of ambition in all of this. And I do think there needs to be some more time to think this through because I don't know that California is going to see windfalls like this maybe ever again. And California state lawmakers, they get hundreds of bills to sift through in the Senate and Assembly. And yesterday, uh, like a Roman Empire uh, emperor deciding the fate of a gladiator on the floor of the Coliseum, they had to give a big old thumbs up or thumbs down on a big stack. Marisa, let's start with you on this. Uh, which ones on the cut list struck uh, stuck out to you the most? Well, I think the fact that we have any police reform bills dying this early in the legislative process is uh, definitely <laughs> worth looking at. I mean, it, with the asterisk that I think the most important one to police reform advocates did get through with some amendments. This is the one that would allow police officers to essentially lose their badge if they uh, act poorly. <laughs> um, but they did also, uh, what didn't move forward were a requirement for background checks to look at whether law enforcement officers have been affiliated with hate groups in the past. Um, another one that would require police departments to ask different agencies to help in investigations of shootings. Um, and so those were definitely, um, I think, you know, again, just at this point in the process to see things die this early that have to do, you know, this is we're coming up on the year anniversary of George Floyd's murder. Um, that to me was pretty striking. Zach, what about you? What stuck out to you the most? Well, without singling out any one issue, I think what was interesting to me is how effective interests were at killing bills. Um, you know, we talked about we talk about the suspense file as being a way in which legislative leaders, ex, you know, stretch their muscles on bills they don't like. But if you look at it, there are a lot of bills that were killed because of effective lobbying. You know, if you look at construction or police unions, you look at the realtors, water agencies. There was a, a whole number of interests out there that essentially, you know, worked on leaders and got their way in killing bills. And so, you know, lobbying is a big factor in what what continues and what doesn't in the legislative process in Sacramento. Lobbying is, you know, it's funny, I, you know, I, I knew what it was before I started working at KPCC. But now that I got in the last eight years been steeped in this whole world, my goodness, lobbyists, it's like watching an episode of Veep, right? That, that it's yes. You think it's not real, but it actually is kind of the way it is on TV and on, in the movies. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Sacramento is a very tight-knit community and California is a you know particular political environment. And I think lobbyists serve, you know, I won't say that California is necessarily an outlier, but lobbyists are there 24-7 and they're very focused on their issues. And legislators listen to them because they have pull both in terms of sometimes voters, certainly in terms of money, but oftentimes, you know, they can own issues. You know, if a legislator wants to understand what's happening in a particular area, they kind of have trusted lobbyists and interests that they go to to try to understand that issue. And it's difficult for individual Californians to, to have their voice heard in quite the same way. So tremendous influence from, from lobbyists. Absolutely. Zach Corser, director of the Policy Lab at Claremont McKenna College. Marisa Lagos, political correspondent for KQED and co-host of the Political Breakdown podcast. Have a great Yellow Tear weekend, you two. <laughs> you do. You do, eh? All right, you know, California is in a drought, and drought tends to mean some pretty bad fires. But there is one other thing that all of this might be impacting, and you're not going to like it, especially if you like the Lino. That's coming up when Take Two continues. Stay with us. Democracy needs to be heard. This is Michelle Martin from NPR's Morning Edition. It's a fact. Local journalism fuels democracy. 
When local news thrives, so does civic participation. LAist and NPR are committed to keeping you and your community informed. But we can't do that without your support. Democracy needs you, and so do we. So please become a member now at laist.com slash give. Now with more take two on 89.3 KPCC in most places you find your podcast, Sammy Martinez. California is looking to be in another record dry year. Drought conditions across the state are deepening with Marin, Mendocino and Sonoma counties already placing water use restrictions on the residents. Drought can pose problems for the state's agriculture across the board. But today we're going to really dive in specifically on what it'll mean for our famous wine industry. And here to discuss uh, with us is UCLA viticulture specialist, Dr. Khan Rutaral. Doctor, welcome to Take Two. Oh, thank you. Now, just to start us off uh, with an explainer, are grapevines uh, fairly water-intensive as a crop? No, not compared to the uh, other crops uh, that we grow in uh, California. Uh, so compared to, uh, let's say, uh, uh, almonds or uh, uh, cantaloupes, uh, they don't even uh, come close. So they're uh, very uh, resilient in that sense. Okay, that's cool. That's good news. Now, how does uh, drought then impact the soil and the grapes and, and therefore the eventual taste of the wine? Uh, well, uh, this is the uh, second year, actually. Uh, previous year was a hyper-arid season, uh, and uh, this year uh, uh, we started out in a deficit in the uh, water year, which runs from um, uh, October to uh, end of uh, uh, May. And uh, that uh, exacerbated a lot of the uh, problems that uh, we had in the uh, previous year. So uh, what we are now seeing is a lot of uh, delayed spring growth, uh, which the vines are, you know, suffering to uh, like catch up because they do not have any uh, connection to the uh, soil left. Uh, that also, uh, you know, uh, uh, made things worse uh, for uh, areas that had a little bit of, uh, you know, spring frost or, uh, you know, winter freeze uh, damage in uh, low-lying areas. So uh, we have the makings of, uh, you know, a very bad uh, crop year. So that's where we are now. Wow. Uh, as far as, uh, you know, taste of the wines go, uh, we'll see how that, uh, you know, uh, plays out. But uh, usually uh, drought or, uh, you know, extreme uh, water deficits uh, such as the ones uh, we're facing this year are not going to be uh, good for our uh, wine quality. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't sound the way you're talking like it's going to be tasting very, very good at all. No, uh, but I mean, like grapes are uh, sold by the uh, ton, so the uh, first thing that's going to be uh, impacted is uh, yield. So the uh, farmers' uh, pockets books are not going to be uh, very happy. Uh, but you know, when you have these uh, extreme deficits, uh, the grapevines uh, will probably uh, try to put all their energy into uh, you know uh, surviving rather than I uh, know uh, trying to uh, keep the uh, crop uh, healthy and uh, alive on the uh, branches or uh, shoots, for lack of a better term. Now we have uh, a few major wine regions in the state, uh, but let's uh, take a look at uh, probably the most famous, Napa and Sonoma. How are uh, current dry conditions affecting the crops there? Yeah. <laughs> um, well. Uh, you know, uh, those regions uh, usually, uh, you know, do uh, fairly well in even in these uh, droughty uh, conditions. But this year, uh, you know, uh, it's something else. Uh, we So we do have a delayed spring growth uh, in these uh, regions as well. So grapevines were, uh, you know, uh, late to, uh, you know, push out. And uh, uh, the, uh, they're uh, struggling to uh, catch up to the uh, season now because uh, there's no uh, moisture in the uh, soil profile. And uh, for uh, growers that have to buy water, uh, even uh, in these regions, uh, it's severely uh, curtailed. For example, uh, you know, we just got a call from a grower uh, yesterday, actually, uh, that has a 120-acre uh, Chardonnay vineyard in uh, southern Napa County. Uh, they're only allocated uh, 34 uh, acre feet. So that's only uh, going to be able to uh, uh, help the vines uh, to stay alive rather than uh, to make, uh, you know, uh, an economical uh, crop. So that's where we are uh, in these regions. Wow. Okay. In Central and Southern California, we have a few regions as well. Are all grape growers in the same boat here in California, or might some regions fare worse than others? 
Well, uh, majority of our uh, grapes are grown within a hundred mile radius of uh, Fresno. Uh, most people don't like hearing that, but uh, you know that's the uh, reality. So uh, that's our uh, most productive uh, area. Also, uh, you know our uh, richest area agriculturally. So those regions are uh, also uh, suffering from a uh, delayed spring growth, where we have a uh, uh, difficulty keeping up with the uh, demand. Uh, however, uh, in those uh, regions, uh, in the uh, San Joaquin Valley, the seven counties of uh, San Joaquin Valley, uh, growers have been uh, able to uh, do uh, what we call a uh, groundwater uh, recharge. So uh, they're doing a little bit uh, better than uh, some of the uh, other regions. So, but uh, you know, as usual, uh, <laughs> uh, Fresno will come back to uh, save the uh, wine industry again. So uh, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, but hearing you chuckle, Doctor, it it almost feels like a chuckle of dread. Uh, no, it's not a chuckle of dread, but uh, you know, uh, there's the reality of the situation. Uh, everybody's uh, asking me about uh, Napa Sonoma. No one's uh, you know asking me about uh, you know where grapes are uh, really grown. But uh, you know, uh, it's a business uh, in the end. So that's where uh, uh, about seventy percent of our uh, crush crush volume uh, comes from. So, uh, you know, uh, the main uh, impetus will be to, uh, you know, uh, keep this, uh, you know, uh, main business uh, alive uh, at this stage. Now, the other issue with drought is its potential to worsen and then lengthen the fire season. Uh, what kind of impacts could a bad fire season have on wineries across the state? That's, uh, that's the great uh, unknown uh, at this point. So uh, last year uh, uh, in uh, North Coast, uh, we were under a uh, smoke cover for about uh, three weeks. And uh, during these uh, three weeks, it was a uh, you know critical time. Uh, grapes were uh, coming off the vine, and then uh, usually in a normal year, uh, what happens is uh, you know the grapevine uh, recuperates at this point, meaning that uh, it'll put back uh, uh, carbohydrates back into the roots to get ready for the uh, following season. But uh, uh, in the previous season, uh, we did not have this chance, so the grapevines uh, did not have a good chance to uh, harden off. So if we uh, have the same uh, problem again, uh, you know, vines will be uh, weaker, coupled that with the drought, uh, the situation will be, uh, you know, uh, worse if this, uh, you know, uh, uh, cyclical nature of uh, things uh, continue. Does smoke from a wildfire somehow influence or seep into the flavor of grapes and then, and then wine? Yes, uh, of course, and uh, it may not be immediate. It can be. Uh, it can, uh, you know, reveal itself. Uh, you know, many, many months uh, later. So uh, it's the uh, great unknown, and uh, uh, that's uh, an active area of uh, research. So these things are uh, new to uh, you know what we call uh, temperate regions. Uh, these are you know frequent uh, uh, wildfires or uh, bushfires. So. That's an active area of our research, and we don't have a whole lot of ways to mitigate this at this point. So if a wine does have smoky notes, I mean, that's that's where it'll come from? Yes, uh, it's like, uh, you know, uh, licking an ashtray, as Ugh. they say. Yikes. I don't think no, anyone wants pleasant. that. Yeah, I don't think <laughs> anyone wants that, especially with an expensive bottle of wine, too. That's the other part of this, too, right, Doctor? I mean, because, you know, the wine industry in California and uh, you know is, is very lucrative, and then people spend a lot of money, and if they get that, I mean, I, well, you think people will be understanding considering the circumstances? Well, uh, if the wine is uh, severely uh, smoke-tainted, uh, you will not see it in the uh, marketplace. Uh, it'll be uh, burned off to uh, alcohol. Uh, uh, okay like, a, you know, a brandy or something, or, a, you know, it might be a blended into a, uh, you know, giant uh, bat. I mean, that will not be uh, released into the, uh, you know, public. So it's not something uh, I would uh, uh, worry about in the uh, marketplace at this point. That's Dr. Khan Rudral, viticulture specialist at UC Davis. Doctor, thank you very much. Thank you. More Take Two coming up in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. Harole is your connection to Los Angeles. Get to know its history. The 1920s were a huge boom time in Los Angeles, and downtown was just exploding. Its politics. It's the biggest local prosecutor's office in the country. And its food. Korean spices with like a hint of sweetness. And just everything we love about L.A., 
Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. Back now with more Take 2 on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. I'm Ian Martinez. Today we bring you Arshe Cooper and the story of how an unlikely group of students from Chicago's West Side, an area notorious for gang violence, made history. It's part of a collaboration with LAist.com that we're calling The 8%, where we profile black changemakers who have made meaningful contributions to L.A. and the black community overall. In Arshay's case, back in 1997, he and a group of his classmates became the first all-black high school rowing team. Arshay was a team captain, an experience that really not only changed the course of his life, but really everyone in that boat. He now works with students across the country, including here in L.A., and he says that he uses sport to break down socioeconomic barriers for students in high-risk communities. Here's Arshay Cooper in his own words. I grew up on the west side of Chicago. You know, it's a community that was built on a lot of trauma because most of our families came from the south. Growing up, it, it was a neighborhood that I wouldn't say a bad neighborhood is, but a, a neglected, a underserved, a mistreated community, a community that has so much talent, but not a lot of access and opportunity. You walk out the door and, and you are skipping over pools of blood. You, you, you hear gunshots when you sleep. You run for your life at times. It was, uh, it, it, it was, it was hard. As a kid, my mother was a drug addict. She, she would say, you know, I'm searching for love in all the wrong places. My brothers were in gangs and it was hard. It, there was no food at home at times. My mom was not home at times, so I didn't have to go to school unless I wanted to. But because there was no food at home, because she was never at home, because uh, it being dangerous and not sure if I'm going to live to see tomorrow, it affected me at, at school every day. There was no way I could concentrate on who really discovered America or what's 50% of half. If, if, if you're not sure if you're going to live or if you're not sure if your mom's going to come home or if, if there's no food in your stomach. The first time I heard the word rowing, I was walking down to the lunchroom after my third period class, and I see this white boat. It was beautiful. I mean, beautiful. And I stopped and stared. And this little white lady came, and she said, like, hey, would you like to join the crew team? Like, crew? Like, what is that? You know, in Chicago, you're taught if someone asks you to join a crew, turn around and run as fast as you can, right? And so I'm like, what's that? She said, it's rowing. Let me show you. So behind the boat was the TV monitor, and they were showing the Olympic Games and people were just rowing so beautifully on the water. And I knew that this would be a great opportunity, an opportunity are there for those who need it and those who make themselves available for it. The coaches had to bring together 20 young people from different neighborhoods and different gangs and try to create a, a brotherhood. And that was rough. But the coaches said, this is not just about being an athlete, it's about being a great human first. Every practice would start off with an icebreaker where we would get to know each other and we would ask questions like, what keeps you up at night? What keeps you going? The first day on the water, I remember we got the boat and it was heavy and we carried it to the dock and there was a few people that wouldn't get on. And I remember saying, you guys deal with gunshots all day long, you scared to get in the boat? And everyone was like, shut up. But finally, we got in the boat and this is the first time we ever got in and the coach pushes us out and no one will row. And this one kid, Deshaun, started crying, like crying on the boat. And then when our coach saw that, we was, he was like, we gotta pull him back in. But it was the second time we went out the same thought process or survival mode that tells you if you hear gunshot runs, tell you, okay, when you're out in open water, in order to get back to the dock safely, we have to pull for each other. That's when we felt like, okay, let's show up every day for each other. Our first race and we, we ran into a brick wall and lost like nobody's business. The football team, the basketball team made fun of us. They would sing, row, row, row your boats in, you know, in a hallway. 
we would get folks say, hey, you know, they have you guys rowing around like slaves on a slave ship. And we got a lot of heat. Even coaches, football coaches would come to us and say, hey, that's a rec sport. It's not a real sport. Come, come play football. We didn't get a lot of respect. And at home, you know, you had people who were like, if you're going to put all that energy towards a sport, put it towards a sport that's going to make you some money in the future. Don't waste your time doing that. It was hard for everyone to see. And we got a really great speech from the Boathouse director, this black man who basically was like, 20 years from now, no one's going to remember those other guys, but they will remember you. And, and he said, not because you ran to a brick wall, but you're the first to do it. Cost of boats was the same price as a Mercedes, very expensive. And we had the oldest hand-me-down boats, right? It's a new program from the west side of Chicago. Other schools, their parents, the private school has a lot of money and, you know, they have boosters and all that stuff. A boat that's 20 years older can not quite move as fast and as smooth as a brand new boat. At the boathouse, like I said, the, the images, the decor, the paintings are all white rowers. So white kids show up and they can see themselves competing as a college athlete, as an Olympian. And we're traveling through Lincoln Park, which is, you know, Chicago's a segregated city and there's some racism, right? And so not only we are dealing with race days, but race issues. So mentally, it was a lot. And so there are some disadvantages. And I see it today when people look at programs like mines back in the 90s, they say, oh, the kids are just not as fast. But we really didn't look at the systemic obstacles that we were facing. And that affects a lot of athletes till this day. As Black people, we use that as fuel and we get better. We figure it out. We, we overcome, we always have. When I roll up in my neighborhood, I don't want people to see a chef, an author, a rower. I want them to say, that's the hope for my community. You think of Harriet Tubman, you don't say, oh, that's the Union spy, although that was her career, but she's known for the freedom that she brought to our people. Or when you think of Gandhi, you don't say, oh, the attorney. No, you think about the peace he brought to the world. Even now, when I hear Harry Belafonte, I don't say, oh, the actor, I say, oh, the activist. So when you represent something bigger than yourself, true impact happens in these communities. And so I want them to think of me and align that with, with hope and, and not my career. That's Arshay Cooper. He's a coach, motivational speaker, and the author of the book, A Most Beautiful Thing, the true story of America's first all-black high school rowing team, which inspired a movie of the same name. To read our extended interview with Arshay, visit us at laist.com slash the 8%, and that's the number 8. All right, a heads up that next Thursday, May 27th at 5 p.m., I'm going to be hosting a live virtual discussion on youth homelessness in Los Angeles and how it affects the mental health of teens that are experiencing it. It's uh, really sure to be a very powerful and informative event. It's free to anyone, so please join us. You can register at kpcc.org slash events. That's kpcc.org slash events. And I'm in love with all of Take Two's listeners. I really am. I feel for all of you. <laughs> all right. That wasn't that weird, okay? Don't give me looks, everyone. Uh, that's going to do it for Take Two. We're on Twitter, at Take Two. That's at Take Two. I'm there as well, at A. Martinez LA. Thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Take Two is back Monday at 2. Marketplace is next. On inheriting. To Tuan Trong, his home country is a lost country. What's keeping you from going back to Vietnam? The communists. Uh, I, 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 can't, I can't stand to see them. But his son Bao longs to live there, the very country Tuan fled. Being homesick for a, a place that's never been home. Listen to Inheriting from LA Studios and the NPR Network, wherever you get your podcasts.